Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Camille Robsis, author of The Law of Kinship, Anthropology, Psychoanalysis, and the Family in France. The book was published by Cornell University Press in 2013. Hi there, Camille. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. No, thank you. I'm a fan of your show. Your oh, podcasts. I'm glad to hear that. Um, so maybe you could get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to, to study French history. Yeah, sure. So um, I actually, that's a sort of complicated question because I have a, a, a complicated background. But my, the, the short version is that my, uh, my mother is Mexican and my father is French. Uh, my mom is a diplomat and worked for the Mexican Foreign Service. So we basically moved around the world. Um, and I went to a French school. My brother and I went to, both went to French schools throughout. And um, one of the things about these French schools ab- abroad is that um, they're super, you know, with France's super centralized education system, you basically are studying the same thing wherever you go at any time. So you could change uh, countries and basically be studying the same Rousseau and the same, you know. Mm-hmm. So so I had a, you know, I didn't live in France very much growing up, but I had a sort of a French educational background. And then, um, and then I ended up, after the back, I ended up going to university in the U.S. I went to, to Brown University and I was not thinking at all of majoring in history and certainly not in French history. And, um, and, but I, I, you know, I was sort of interested in theoretical questions. And uh, as these things happened, there was a, a fantastic professor of French history at Brown um, at the time, Carolyn Dean. And I, she was teaching a course in, in modern French history. And I, you know, and I went the first day and looked at the syllabus and I was, I was amazed that, you know, most of these books I hadn't heard of, the books she was teaching, or I hadn't, or these were issues that I had barely touched in, in a French um, high school, mm-hmm. uh, like the Algerian War, like the, you know, the collaboration of Vichy, the uh, questions of race, sexuality, and, and basically issues that I hadn't thought of in, in, um, explicitly um, 
in in a French uh, educate high school, and um, and so I took the class, and the you know the issues that we were discussing in the class matched up with some of the other theoretical issues that I was investigating in in other classes, uh, especially around questions of the questions of universalism, of difference, of uh, political theory, and so and so I decided to basically. Uh, write a thesis in French history, and then when I applied to to graduate school, it seemed like an obvious choice to continue uh, thinking about some of these larger theoretical questions that I had. And how how about the the genesis of this project in particular? Where did you get the idea for this book, and how did you decide to work to work on these questions and, and issues? Um, so. This, uh, I mean, in some ways, this this was a continuation again of some of the questions that I had explored, um, that have that I had been exploring for many years, particularly around this problem of French universalism and difference, and and how uh, France uh, had dealt with questions of uh, of race, of sexuality, of gender. Um, this book, in particular, was kind of the culmination of, of many of many things. Uh, the, the first the first thing I should say is that it was you know basically like in the news <laughs> when I started to to work on this. The the Pax was the Pax debates were were raging. So, um, it so was this very, is the civil the civil union exactly. Sorry, yeah, the the, the the civil union law that I, that I write about in the book, and um, so that was you know all over the news, and people were writing about this, and I was following this just like um like an informed citizen basically, and. <laughs> it was very interesting what was happening in France in terms of the, the language that was being used, which I'm assuming we'll talk about later, but, but the, the kind of arguments that were being used, the, the language that was being used. So, so, um, so I started, I wanted to write about that. And then um, I was also, when I got to graduate school, I, I did my PhD at Cornell, which had a very, which still has actually a very strong um, kind of psychoanalysis contingent. Uh, so I was taking a lot of courses on psychoanalysis. Uh, I worked with Dominic Capra, who, who who wrote a lot on psychoanalysis, and I also took courses with other people who, uh, with kind of hardcore Lacanians. And so uh, I started to read a lot of psychoanalysis and to think about. Um, Questions of, of 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 sexuality from a psychoanalytic point of view, which were which was very different from the kind of uh, social constructionist perspective that I had had more in college. So thinking about the unconscious, thinking about desire, thinking about um, you know bodies, etc., from a more psychoanalytic perspective. So these were the you know trying to think about uh, gender and sexuality. Um, from a psychoanalytic perspective, basically. Um, so all of that culminated into this book. It's really interesting to hear you talk about that, that background, well, personally, but also intellectually, because I can, now that I've read the book, I can really see how all of those threads come together in the, in the different issues that you tackle in it. Um, in the introduction to the book, Kemi, you describe the project here as an attempt to explain, and your word is the, the entanglement of this thing called familialism and structuralism, and, you know, to examine why these two things are so successful in French political culture. So I wonder if we could start there, and if you could give us a bit of a, a sketch of what familialism means, what structuralism is, and I know that that's kind of a ridiculous <laughs> question for me to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway, um, and what makes the study of the intersection of these two big isms, you know, unique or specific in, in the French context? 
Yeah. So, uh, yeah, those are, that's a hard question because it, it, it basically it took me the whole book to figure this out. But, but I think the, so familialism, how I'm using it in the book is, is, uh, the idea that the family is absolutely central to the social. Um, not just that it's important to the social, because I think most countries, most political cultures, you know, give the family an important role in, in the constitution of the nation and the, in the kind of vision of political uh, unity. But but here, the French, what I'm calling here French familialism, was the idea that the family was absolutely, uh, was constitutive of the social, that you could have no social without the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, given the sort of importance of the social in French history, which is again something we, we can talk about later, um, uh, you know, the family ended up being very important, particularly the heterosexual family. And so the part of the, the, the beginning of the book traces how how and why the family was so important in French uh, political culture, and in, in particularly in two, through two vectors. Um, the First, through the law, uh, and in particular through the kind of the role of the family in the civil code and in, in, in uh, the 1804 Napoleonic Code, um, because the family was, was one of the two pillars, basically, of the civil code, along with, with, with property. And... Uh, and the second axis is the the role of the family in public in public policy and social policy, and um, and and the family was basically um, absolutely essential for all social policy, basically from the end of the nineteenth century throughout the early twentieth century throughout Vichy and up until the post war reconstruction. So there's a kind of, one of the things I, I was most amazed when I researched this book was the, the kind of continuity of family policy um, in France from from its beginning, but it's basically at the end of the 18, 19th century up to uh, you know the nineteen sixties basically. So that's for familialism and um, and structuralism whew, that that's a hard one too. I mean the way that I'm here, I should say, is that the structuralism I'm talking about in the book is structuralist anthropology and structuralist psychoanalysis. Um, and I would say that they share two characteristics. The first one is that uh, there's a kind of, there's a way to think about systems as a totality and outside of any historical um, specificity to try to propose a kind of universal, um, a historical system, total, totalizing system. Um, so, uh, for example, both Lévi-Strauss and Lacan, who are the main figures in this book, are interested in thinking about kinship not as products of a particular culture or a particular time or particular circumstances, but as universal um, uh, ahistorical structures that have you know, been with us, that are, that are co-constitutive of humanity. So in the first part of the book, Camille, you reach back historically, and you just mentioned this, to the Napoleonic Code of 1804, and then the French Family Code of 1939, and you're sort of looking at the roots of this this familialism in the French context. Um, and you talk about, and you've already raised this a little bit, the ways that familialism has been kind of intertwined with, and I guess constitutive of, republicanism and universalism, these very, dis, you know, very French notions mm-hmm. um, politically. So, so how, how does that work in the, in the first part of the book? How does that history um, connect the history of familialism with the history of French republicanism and, mm-hmm. and universalism? So uh, in terms of the, so the law, for the law part of this, the, the Napoleonic Code, um, I looked in the, I look, I spent some time thinking about the genesis of the code and how, how it was constructed. And um, 
you know, the one of the things that and Suzanne Dessin's book is very was very helpful for that because one of the things that the revolutionaries did is that they, they you know there was a huge upheaval of, of family law, and so the. The, the Thermidorians and especially Napoleon were very interested in, in giving, you know, individuals kind of framing mechanisms so that the passions wouldn't be out of control and you wouldn't have another terror again. Um, and one of the framing mechanisms that they put in place was the family was trying to, you know, think, go back on some of these uh, family reforms of the revolution and, and re, uh, and, and re-solidify, um, in particular, the system of legitimacy and, and, and marriage. So, uh, so, so the the what was interesting to me about the, how how this links to the social more generally is that there's very you know the 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 people who were writing the code were and Napoleon also were very interested in in thinking of the family not as a natural phenomenon but as a social phenomenon that we needed to preserve um, almost as a fiction but that was necessary for kind of social and psychic stability. There's this idea that you know people. It doesn't matter what they do on the side, but that the law needs to look at, um, you know, basically legitimate marriage and legitimate filiation um, and take that only that into consideration. Um, so so the family was kind of the way, you know, the, the was really um, I mean, I, I, the, 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 the term I use is that the family was kind of the key to the to the Republican social contract. Um, of course, the Napoleonic Code was not necessarily Republican, um, but but, you know, because it, it because it uh, when it was originally written out, but because it. Uh, I, I use the expression of Jean Carbonnier, the, the the legal scholar, who basically called the civil code the France's con- you know constitution. Basically, it's because it, it remained in place um, basically till till today. You know, with a few addition, a uh, few modifications, but the structure of the civil code is still the one we use today. So that's in terms of the civil code. In terms of, of family policy, um, I also look at the nineteen. So I look at the nineteen thirty nine family code, which was um, a document that was that was promoted by familialists, by family activists, basically um, since the end of the nineteenth century. Um, and these were a very, diff- you know, I look at who they were basically, and there was a, they're very, they're, so they're different. Some were social Catholics, some were um, kind of paternalist, entrepreneurial um, uh, business leaders. Some were priests explicitly. Um, but what, one of the things that was interesting to me is that despite the kind of range of political positions um, that all of these, all of these familialists argued that the family was absolutely key to solving France's uh, multiple social problems, uh, in particular, the, the you know the famous social question that haunted people, haunted French policymakers and French um, social theorists, um, basically since the end of the of the nineteenth century. So, how do we? think about, uh, you know, the cohesion of the social, the whole of the social, and not just have a world, a society that's made of, of separate individuals, but how do we try to think about the, the kind of beyond the individuals and what makes them congeal as a, as a whole? Um, and so, so they promoted the family, and in particular, one of the things that's, that's very interesting is that, the, you know, the, 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 ni- the end of the 19th century uh, is also coincides with a kind of t- a time of depopulation, the, the, the mm-hmm. fear and so a lot of the people who were pushing for a family uh, policy in France were the people who were very worried about depopulation. And they said that the way to, to solve depopulation was to give family benefits that would make basically people have more children. 
Um, but that was not just a numerical uh, agenda. It was also a kind of theoretical agenda that the family would also solve all these other social questions in France. Like, so, you know, all basically all of the problems of the ni- end of the 19th century um, would be solved by a strong family policy. So in that way, um, again, it was seen as kind of the solution to the Republican social contract as the as the key to it. So you, you say at some point during the, the this discussion that your goal here is to really, and I'm quoting here, to account for the significance and the, the longevity of, of these legal frameworks. So what, you know, what do you argue along those lines? What did you come up with in terms of why this 1804 code and this um, 1939 code, the persistence of these things in terms of legal frameworks in France? Yeah, I mean... I mean, in some ways, it's it's because of this equation between the family and the social, you know, because it seemed like if you went against it, that you would go against the social, hence you would go against republicanism, hence you would go against basically France, you know. And I think if you understand that equation at the beginning, it makes sense, you know, the end of the book makes more sense um, where I mentioned basically how... Um, you know, homosexuality or, or single sex parenting or, or non-traditional families were constructed as a threat to the nation, not just as a threat to, as a threat to republicanism. Um, so, so I think it's because, because they argued so much for this um, necessary link between family and uh, heterosexual family and republicanism that it was very hard to to, cri- to critique on any side and 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 again one of the things that I think was was really interesting and surprising when I was doing the research for this for this book is that um, basically all political parties defended the family until until the you know well I mean to this day but um but it wasn't the 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 civil code was not modified until the 60s and 70s, which is the what I address in the second part of the book. Uh, but essentially, it stayed in place throughout very, very different political regimes. So despite the difference in political regimes, everyone could agree that family policy and family benefits um, were, were crucial and that um, that uh, that you know um, an import uh, that giving the family a foundational role in civil law was also very important. Well, and I'm going to want to follow up with you on that in terms of the contemporary resonance of some of these issues. But before we do that, let's talk about these notions of kinship and the symbolic that are so significant to the arguments that you're making in the book. You devote a chapter to the discussion of these ideas in the works and the, the early texts of two, I mean, you mentioned them already, two really towering figures of French intellectual life in the 20th century, so Claude Lévi-Strauss and Jacques Lacan. So can you give us a bit of an outline of these concepts and the roles, these concepts of kinship and the symbolic and the, and the roles that they've played in relationship to the French legal and political familialism that you're treating in the book? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> what I was interested in in, in, in Lévi-Strauss and Lacan was was basically to think about so, so you know, these figures, um, they, they, you know, they weren't reading French familialist activists and French familial, the early French familial activists were not reading Claude Lévi-Strauss and Jacques Lacan because they came after. So, <laughs> so, so it's not, it wasn't a, a sort of cause and effect relation that, that, that they had, but I was interested in the fact that they made that, that kind of the structuralism, the structuralist thinkers, that these two structuralist thinkers and the familialist uh, political activists were making analogous arguments about the role of kinship and the social. So the argument that I develop in, in the second chapter of the book, which is devoted to Levi Strauss and Lacan, is that basically um, 
So, for example, let's take the, the case of Levi-Strauss to begin with. Um, Levi-Strauss writes The Elementary Structures of Kinship, which is the, you know, the most important book he wrote on kinship, um, right after the war. And one of the things he says is that he, after World War II, I should say, and one of the things he says is that, um, you know, until now, uh, everybody who had tried to think of kinship to give an account of kinship um, had failed to do, to give a kind of totalizing, universalizing, final, definitive account of how kinship um, had emerged. And, and more specifically, the question that is troubling Levi-Strauss is, how do we know what is what is natural and what is socially acquired? What, what, what is the distinction? How do you think the distinction between nature and culture? Um, and so he goes through kind of all of the history of, uh, of, um, of people who've worked on, on kinship and he, you know, criticizes each one and finally says, you know, the only way that we can distinguish, and he says at the beginning of the book, I should say something like, you know, I am finally going to give you the definitive account of this, right? <laughs> and, um, and he, and, you know, it's a, it's a massive, ambitious, extremely ambitious book. And, and, you know, finally he says, well, the only way we can think about the difference between nature and culture is through this, um, the incest taboo, the incest prohibition, the prohibition of incest. Every culture has does has a form of prohibition of incest, um, and it's not just something that's natural because there's obviously incest has happened. So it's not like it's a, there's a natural instinct against mm-hmm. incest, and it's not just purely socially constructed either. Because if it were just pure so, pure social construction, it w- you wouldn't be able to account for the fact that this happened has happened in all times and all places, um, because you know cultures differ. So how do you explain the kind of universality of it? Right. And and so this is where he, I think he gives a structural explanation, um, in, in some ways bypassing the cause and effect, you know, answer and saying and saying, well, it, you know, uh, it, this is just something that happens, and without that, we can't understand how um, how anything how we get to society, how societies are formed, and so um, and so basically, you know, he he makes. Uh, the incest prohibition, um, the, the, the key, the constitu- the key to the constitution of, of society. And how, how we get from that to kinship is that basically Levi Strauss says, uh, you know, the prohibition of incest is not so much the fact that you can't marry your sister or your mother, or, but it means that because you can't marry the women in your tribe, you have to go marry other women outside of your tribe. Hence, the, nece- the consequence of the incest prohibition is exogamy. It's marriage outside of the clan right. and the exchange of women. So again, this is something that, you know, Gail Rubin has written about, that Judith Butler has written about, but basically how, how the incest prohibition in Levi-Strauss is basically the, the condition of the creation of, of a kind of compulsory heterosexuality, if, you, if you'd like. So is this the structuralist social contract that you talk about in the book? Is that, is that what you've outlined for us? Yeah. yeah. And, it, and the way I kind of, it's hard to explain, but it, in the book, I have a kind of an arrow. <laughs> um, and when I teach these texts, I think the arrow is the kind of the, the way to think about it, because there's a, you know, there's Levi-Strauss posits a state of cult, a state of nature. He, you know, he says there's a state of nature, but it's never existed. But one could imagine the state of nature would be a kind of pure animality, right? A realm of pure animality. And then was there a state of culture or society that he, he uses the term interchangeably. Um, and to get from one to the other, there's this kind of arrow, um, which is called the incest prohibition. Um, but you can't go back. It's not like you could say at some point, like, I'm going to refuse the incest prohibition and I'm going to go back to state of nature, right? Because that would be logically impossible. So he, and he does this in a very kind of smart, careful um, argument in the book, you know, to try to, to show how we, we have to participate in the system of exchange because 
we are as as humans always already social. So that's that's for Levi Strauss and 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 like oh, what's interesting is that you know Levi Strauss sort of ends with um, the end of the elementary structures is really fascinating because he he ends with with Freud and he goes back to he ends actually with linguistics and he says you know out of all the oh I, mean, I should backtrack a little bit is also the, the the other important thing about about the elementary structures of kinship is that Levi Strauss is kind of trying to promote this as a new anthropology right as a new structuralist anthropology and he's breaking with kind of previous anthropology which has which was tainted by Vichy and was a little was quite complicit mm-hmm. with racism and colonialism so he's um so he it's a very you know it's a book that has a kind of also disciplinary uh, ambition and he and he ends with freud and he says he ends with 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 freud and he says look um the, the place to look now is actually linguistics because linguistics is is the only discipline that's been able to think structurally about certain things and he and he turns to freud and he says freud you know totem and taboo had a good idea he 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 realized that um you know that basically exogamy is the as the root of society, but Freud is so preoccupied by by history, and so he goes into this crazy narrative about the you know the brothers killing the father, and basically no one he, he doesn't even believe it. Nobody believes a story, uh, but he's caught in this historical model, um, and so in fact what we have to do is forget this historical model and go to structures that have been in people's minds throughout all times, and in some ways like kicks history out of the door, um, and. And ends with that, you know, and this is basically the end, the end, the very last pages of, of elementary structures. And so my reading of Lacan is that Lacan sort of picks up where Levi Strauss ends um, on this question of a structural uh, understanding of kinship uh, in the subject, not just in the social, but also in the in the individual subject. And and he links that to the Oedipus complex and says, you know. Uh, again, all of these these people have um, all of the psychoanalysts have been obsessed with have misunderstood the kind of force of Freud, um, which was basically to to offer a structural um, understanding of subjectivity and of the social and of kinship. But Freud didn't have the kind of um, I guess a theoretical um, you know daringness or something to to do this. So I'm going to do this, and this is where and in particular I give a close reading of his 1953. Rome discourse, where I think he he again launches his his um tr- his attempt to, or he, he where he attempts to recuperate a structuralist reading of Freud to promote a structuralist reading of Freud, and he's uh, Lacan is also invested in his own disciplinary troubles and and dramas. Um, and you just said this thing, uh, Camille, about uh, about how the early familialists, of course, don't read uh, Levi Strauss and Lacan because those texts aren't written yet, <laughs> but. Even subsequent um, familialists, you, 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 one of the most sort of fascinating contributions I think that your book makes uh, to the story of, of familialist discourse in France is the illumination of these players that you refer to as kind of bridge figures, figures who brought the ideas of anthropology and psychoanalysis, brought the ideas of Levitas and, and, and Lacan into the more public and political realm and, and imagination. Um, sort of out of discourse and into practice, as, as it were. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about who these bridge figures were and right. what their roles were in the story that you're telling in the book. So, yeah, so w- when I was trying to kind of reconstruct the the story, I mean, the basic, you know, motivating question behind behind the book um, it was... Uh, was how you know how did how did these really complicated and really difficult theories of Levi Strauss and Lacan kinship uh, make it to the political world? How did we have deputies quoting them during these debates around the family in the 1990s and, and 2000s? And so, 
And, you know, and when I thought originally that I would, you know, get the answer by reading enough Levi Strauss and reading enough <laughs> but I did, you know, in the second, in the beginning of the second chapter. And then I realized, you know, actually, um, that's just not going to get me anywhere because it's, uh, what, you know, what they're getting is, I mean, they're, they are using the language of Levi-Strauss and like also understanding the language is, the, is one key to the puzzle, but it doesn't explain, it couldn't explain to me how these ideas were actually filtered through in the political and world and in the popular culture. Um, so that concepts such as the symbolic that I mentioned that I, you know, that, that play an important role in my argument in the second chapter uh, become kind of self-evident concepts in, in, in contemporary discourse in France. So, so the way that I, and this was where um, the archival research that I did was really sort of surprising and helpful um, to me because I, I came across these figures that, as you said, are, I called bridge figures in the books. And, and th- these were psychoanalysts or anthropologists who, in fact, had read Lévi-Strauss and Lacan, um, who had who sometimes were close disciples or colleagues, and who were using the, the, these very abstract notions of, of, of kinship um, and bringing them into translating them, I say, basically for politicians, for for polit for policy and for law. Um, and so I mentioned three people in particular in the book: Georges Moco, uh, Françoise Dalto, and André Berge, who all played important role in public policy uh, in France, basically from you know the 1930s until the 1960s. And um, and I, I examined how. They brought some of these ideas um, of uh, these were three psychoanalysts, but more explicitly three ide- the ideas of Lacan, the kind of language that Lacan used, uh, the symbolic, I said, as I said, the phallus, the, the name of the father, kind of foundational concepts of Lacanian psychoanalysis, how they translated that for public policy. So, Camille, the second part of the book focuses on family law and policies in the period from about the mid 1960s on. and you know, after this exploration of the roots of familialism, you look at a range of critiques and sort of alternatives to a more traditional understanding of of the family as the kind of foundation of the of the nation and the republic. And you refer to a quiet revolution in French family law and policy in this period. So I'm just wondering, you know, what do you mean by this, and what changes in the 1960s in France? Yeah. So um, so basically, the the book is you know as you said is, is set up in three parts. So the beginning examines the you know what I call the rise of familialism. So through this through both and I should say that the book is also interweaves uh, chapters of intellectual history and political slash legal history. So mm-hmm. so the rise of familialism, which is the first part of the book, you know, is the covers the what we just talked about basically the right the, you know the 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 emergence of familialism as a political discourse in law and in public. Policy. Policy, and then the rise of um, familialism in structuralism um, through the through the close readings of Levi Strauss and Lacan, and then finally, uh, you know, a, there's a chapter on these on these bridge figures that I was just talking about, and how they uh, they managed to 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 bring this this um, complicated language to the political world and these complicated. Um, these complicated notions of familialism, um, how in some ways they they provided the link between political familialism and structural familialism. Mm -hmm. So the the second part of the book um, examines the critique of of this model of familialism um, in the 1960s and 1970s. And there's, again, two axes to this. The first one is is in, in, in public policy and in political culture, and the second one is in intellectual history. So, so the, I think you're asking me right now about the fourth chapter, which is basically mm-hmm. 
what I called the quiet revolution. I didn't call it <laughs> a legal scholar called it the quiet revolution in family law. And this was um, essentially there's a couple of things that happen after after the Second World War. So the the you know De Gaulle is a huge familialist and basically really pushes family policy. And what's very interesting is that he we can see you know you you'd think that after Vichy the family would be a sort of tainted institution. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, lots of, of historians have, have, have shown how the family was a, you know, a, a crucial um, uh, element of, of, Vichy's, um, the, of, the, of the national revolution, basically. And so you'd think, you know, it was, it was difficult in some ways for de Gaulle to reclaim familialism and to make it seem uh, like a Republican institution that you'd want to promote and not disqualify. Um, but so, but he manages to do this. And I, and, and I kind of examined that in detail in the book and familialism. So, so, you know, not only that, but, but basically de Gaulle and his collaborators make uh, the family benefits, the key to, um, to the system of social security, which they institute right after during the basically right in the aftermath of World War II, so so familialism continues to live basically until the, the all, all through the Reconstruction, so the the you know late forties, nineteen fifties, and then essentially there's a couple of things that happen. Um, the first thing is that there's a new demographic panorama in the sense that the baby, you know, there's no longer, there's a sort of baby boom and there's no longer a need to have as many children as there was before. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, the family policy and the immigration policy worked. <laughs> so, so there's less, you know, there's, 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 there's less of an emphasis or less of an urgency for, for, for promoting the family. Um, there's also, there's a change in political parties. Um, some of the parties that have been, had, had been pushing for this familialist policies, uh, in particular, the MRP, lose some of their political, um, like, importance, basically, during those years. And then the final thing that happens is that there's a, in terms of the civil code, um, there's this attempt, there's this kind of idea that, that some of the measures of the civil code are just, uh, you know, basically uh, old or dépassé, you know, that, that you, you still, like, that you can't, like, women can't be needing the signature of their husbands to make a check or that, you know, that, that, uh, Natural children, so with, with the legal term of natural children, which basically is a, a, the legal term for bastard children, don't have any recognitions. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, for this was causing just a series of really complicated um, legal dilemmas, you know, including, for example, like, you know, famous cases like Picasso's children, you know, who are not who didn't get the inheritance because they're not legitimate. So, so, so there was just a kind of discrepancy between the codes, the code, and the social mores, and so. There's an attempt in the 60s and 70s to reform the civil code and to basically make it more uh, sociolo- adapted to the to the social to social more more sociological and less com- abstract normative. Um, and so again, the, what's, what was interesting to me is that there's a kind of debate about uh, the the essence of the code, what the, what the code should do um, in parliament and in legal journals and. And there's very much two two sides to this to this debate. So on one side, people who say, "Look, it doesn't matter what the empirical is or what the norm, what what people do in their everyday life. What we the, the code needs to preserve law because law needs to affirm kind of transcendental, abstract values of how people should live, not how people live." Right. <laughs> and and on the other side, people saying like, "No, this is absurd. The law needs to reflect, uh, you know." everyday realities and this is a kind of tension that we're going to see throughout the 80s and 90s but but it starts during those years and basically the people who are in favor of um 
of the social of the law as re, as a reflecting re- reality in some ways when because you know uh natural children get there's a reform affiliation in 1972 which basically allows natural children to, to receive inheritance um there's uh the reform of divorce which makes divorce much easier um you know there's a there's a series of reforms around that that i mentioned that basically uh seem to make the family less abstract less normative and more uh like any other social institution not the institution that determines everything else and that needs to be preserved for everything else to make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, in recent years, well, as you know, Kemi, there's been so much focus on the 60s and especially on the pivotal role that 68 plays, not just in France, but more globally. And I'm just wondering about that. You know, what's the significance of 68, this moment that we think of as a kind of explosive moment of political, cultural, sexual revolution and some of the changes that come out of that that period and its aftermath, how does that fit into this history of familialism and, and some of the changes that you're talking about in, in, in this period? Yeah, I mean, it very much fits in it, I think, because, you know, the 68, uh, I mean, the, the for the legal, you know, the the in terms of what I just talked about, you know, 68 sort of uh, crystallizes some of these um, social changes that were happening, you know, and, and, it, and it just... Um, is another manifestation of the fact that uh, there's a real um, disconnect between law and 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 how people are living their lives. Young people, especially, are living their lives. Um, but the second the second importance of May '68 in the book is that uh, you know so the so I just mentioned the kind of political history critique of familialism, but there's also a, an intellectual critique of familialism, and this is the the fifth chapter of the book, and uh, in particular. You know, I, I, I'm interested in the way that what's what's referred to as the pensée 68, the kind of you know pe- authors that that um, what we call here kind of French theory, <laughs> um, kind of the foundational figures of th- French theory. So Michel Foucault, Althusser, um, Deleuze and Guattari, who play a very Deleuze and Guattari. The, the chapter is focused on Deleuze and Guattari and Ira Gray. So those are the kind of main figures of the chapter. Mm-hmm. How they how the critique of the of, of the heterosexual family and of, of familialism more specifically um, is the conduit for their critique of society more generally. Uh, so, so in some ways, they take this idea of the structuralist social contract that people like Lacan and Levi Strauss had posited and agree with it. They say yes, there is a, an intimate role, between, an intimate link between fam- familial structure family structure and social structure. But of course, what we want is a revolution. So we want a new social structure. Mm -hmm. So we need a new familial structure um, that will basically bring about this new society. And so the critique of society in their minds has to go through a critique of the family and in particular through a critique of the Oedipus complex and the, which is the key to, to Lacan's um, structuralist, what I, what I, what I'm arguing is Lacan's structuralist social contract. So, so the chapter, um, you know, looks at at at, at uh, Deleuze and Guattari's uh, anti Oedipus, which was published in 1972, and which was very much a reaction to May '68. You know, the both authors are basically Deleuze and Guattari. They they say this in their in their in their diaries and in their in their papers. You know, they say, look, after May '68, um, we were both confronted with a problem. Um, how is it that? workers are not revolting when they should be revolting <laughs> you know it's like the uh, you know and this is the kind of story of, of the failed worker revolt in May 68 so that you know the students uh were ready to go all the way and then the workers settled 
for better wages, better work conditions, better, you know, just basically settled instead of, of taking revolution all the way. And so, you know, their, their conclusion is basically, well, you know, we have to think about what is in people's minds, basically that a lot that um, is blocking the, the real revolution. What is it that is blo- and And the answer they give is basically Oedipus. Oedipus is what is inside people's minds that is preventing them from being truly free, truly liberated. Hmm. And, uh, and so of course the way to have, true liberation is to get rid of Oedipus, to de-Oedipalize. <laughs> right. I'm wondering, uh, Kemi, how uh, some of these changes that you're talking about in this period in, in the 1960s and then into the 70s, how are they connected to, you know, the sort of broader French political and even economic landscape? You know, we think of this as a period of intense, an intense consumer culture and changes in terms of political parties and some of those kinds of things. Is there still this kind of common denominator of family is at the heart of everything? Or do some of these other dynamics affect the course of familialism in this period? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think the other other dynamics do affect um, the course of familialism. And all of a sudden, it seems like the family has just lost the, the central political claim it had, you know, so, so it becomes, uh, for example, you know, this is the beginning of, um, I mean, this goes back a little bit to the chapter on, 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 on the chapter, chapter four, which is more about political history, but it, you know, um, other issues come to the forefront, for example, single mothers, you know, the famille monoparentale is the sort of the beginning of, of, uh, single parent households and they want specific rights too. So is that, can you count those, can you count these households as, you know, do these households get family benefits or do they not? And of course, when family benefits were conceived of at the end of the 19th century, you know, they were for a large, <laughs> numerous families, not for all families, right? So so right. this is the question that begins to be very interesting in the 60s and 70s of who counts as a family? Um, how how do we rethink the limits of family? And And I think, you know, What's interesting is that the new players on the scene. So, so in the sixties, it's mostly, as I said, single mothers. But later, you know, by the time it's the eighties, it becomes um, also, you know, divorced parents. But also, but also, and then the, by the nineties, it's you know, same sex families. How they they also play with this language of a family and who, you know, if if, if the family is going to be the key to the social, we're a family too, and we want certain rights also. And so right. then it becomes an interesting uh, debate about who, you know, about what. With the family, is the family precisely this kind of universal, abstract, normative entity, or is it reflective of social change? We've talked, Kemi, about you know the dynamics of and the interactions between French intellectual and political life and policy and some of these other things. And I just something you said just a moment ago made me think. Okay, I, I understand the the uniqueness of the of the French context here, but are there is there an outside that? infiltrates in any way just in terms of i don't know british or american ideas or policies or influences like is is it a closed system um or is there any kind of transnational exchange of ideas about you know the the theoretical ideas but also potentially political and policy ideas yeah, the question of the outside is very interesting because it, it changes throughout the in the book, basically, you know, the different periods. But um, the um, I mean, the French. The, the first thing to say is that the the French system of family policy was the the France was one of the first the first countries to have 
an elaborate system of family policy. And if you, you know, the, um, in fact, you know, some historians of, of fascist Italy, such as Victoria de Grazia, for example, has, has suggested that, you know, the, that Mussolini got inspired by, by, by France in terms mm-hmm. of family policy. So, so, so it had a very, so it did look outside, you know, um, French family policymakers did constantly look outside. Of course, in the thirties, the outside that they were looking to were, was uh, Germany and Italy, right? right. Saying, saying the, these countries had a particularly, you know, they had been able to solve the kind of depopulation problem. They had been able to solve the numerical problem, you know, of a population, especially the Germans. And, and this, they had done this through a, through a family, through a strong family policy. So that's how the reference to the outside functioned in those early years. Um, and in the later years, I mean, yes, again, there is this idea that other countries are doing things differently. And in particular, there's a very interesting tension between kind of, um, common law and um, and civil law. And, you know, and so there is this idea that, look, uh, especially the Anglo-Saxon system is basically has a system of law, family law, um, where, you know, things just adapt as things go. So you argue for a case and then becomes a precedent and then it goes on. You know, there's not this obsession with, with uh, thinking about uh, with this, with with abstraction, basically, and with with uh, with normativity, with abstract normativity, I'd say. And so there's a there's a you know they're very uh, certainly the the end the last part of the book which deals with contemporary laws. So like questions about bioethics, questions about same sex parenting, questions about divorces. Um, in those cases, the French are very much aware of what's happening outside, um, mm-hmm. but they're also wary of it. You know, you don't want a system like the American system where they're very worried about having a system where the law would lose its, all of its symbolic power is the words they are using, you know, not, not like America right. doesn't have a symbolic power, but it's, or, <laughs> but it's you know? right. Right. So, so they're, so they're trying to preserve a kind of um, national understanding of, of, of the law. Um, and certainly in terms of intellectual history too, you know, there is, uh, I mean, I think you're right. Like there is, there's also, uh, you know, a critique of structuralism coming from the outside that, uh, that starts to, to infiltrate, um, French theory. Um, so not so much with Deleuze and Guattari and, and, and Yerger, but certainly the people who come after, um, there's a very strong critique of structural anthropology in the U S you know, there's a, within anthropology, there's a, there's a, and, and of course with feminism, um, there's a strong critique of both of the, of, uh, of, of a kind of limited, um, vision of structuralist anthropology and structuralist psychoanalysis. Sure. Just was starting to talk about the sort of last part of the book where you talk about this return of familialism, that if there are these critiques and challenges um, in the 1960s and 70s, that, that into the 1980s, you describe and analyze a return to the structural social contract and um, following this intense period. So what accounts for this return in French intellectual and political life in, in your estimation? Um, I'm not, I mean, that's, that's the, the, the key to the book that I don't know if I exactly found it, but I, you know, I, what I trace is I do trace this return. There's a return in the eighties. Um, I think, I mean, the explanation I give is that it's, um, after this critique, this intense political and intellectual critique of familialism in the eight, So like right now we're in the early eighties, there's this attempt to say, okay, um, the prop, not everything is, should be subject to, uh, critique or to a debate about rights um, that there are we need to go back to certain uh, 
universal transcendental values like and so the family becomes one of these values that you want to affirm um so as i said a lot of this plays out in around the language of rights so people who were asking for new rights as i said uh, single parent household um same-sex parents are saying we have the rights to be families we have rights to you know uh conceive to have access to, to reproductive technology we have access we, we have rights to marriage we have the right to give life is a right that they ask for and basically, uh, there's a there's a very interesting uh, return or response to this because you know to, to the, the, the the people who are who are worried about this kind of family, this this intense change say, look, it's not just we can't just have a society where everyone argues for their own little private right. We need to think about the social. We need to think about the coherence of the social, the kind of um, the 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 unity of the social because all of these little rights are disintegrating or fragmenting the cohesion <laughs> and the unity of the national body. And this is the kind of Republican thinker, the return of some Republican thinkers. And it's not just in terms of sexuality, you know, it's, it happens all over the place. It's people who are, um, you know, affiliated with journals such as Le Débat, journals such as Esprit, uh, you know, so, so uh, there's a great anxiety about, um about the problem of difference and, and abstract universalism during those years, um, starting in the 1980s and up to the 1990s. So in the book, I trace how sexuality functions, but you could, you know, there's similar concerns around immigration, around, uh, you know, other other questions, basically. Well, and I, I wanted to ask you about that, Kemi, how this other history that's going on in the 20th century, uh, you know, a history of race and empire and immigration and you know, in the post-war context, a kind of post-colonial condition, I guess we could call it in France. What's the relationship between those histories and the one that you're looking at in, in this book? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's that's a hard one to, 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 to figure out, but it, it, there are there, I think the two histories are completely co, um, what's the word, co-extensive or co, um, they, 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 they're, they work together. Mm-hmm. There, so they you can't think one without the other. Um, one of the the interesting threads, for example, that I trace is that the the institutions that create family policy at the the, at the early twentieth century are the same institutions that develop the immigration code. So so basically, someone like Georges Mocot, for example, one of the bridge figures I analyzed, is both a, starts out as a as a as an expert on immigration policy. And then moves to family policy. So there's a kind of very, very strong link at the level of policy between thinking immigration and thinking the family. And it's not just at the level of policy. It's also just, uh, you know, more, more generally, um, uh, you know, both both entail a certain certain question about reproduction of the nation and who's going to reproduce and what is going to be reproduced. And, and, and so I think those, those, those two, two, you know, those two categories are constantly mixing and, and uh, sort of interweaving and, you know, (laughs) throughout, throughout the, throughout the 20th century. Um, And I think, you know, again, the critique of the family also happens in the sixties and seventies around the time of decolonization and the language of decolonization is constantly permeating uh, the language of a family, a critique of familialism, like that, you know, the people talk about the kind of decolonization of the married wife, for, for example, you know, um, so, so, right. there's, so there's, there's lots of interesting, uh, you know, I don't have a kind of overall theoretical answer, but there's lots of interesting links between the two, between the two. And certainly uh, in the eighties, I think it's very clear that, that these debates around the family happen around the same time as debates around immigration. And that there's a general anxiety about, um, 
who is French, who counts as French, who is going to be French, um, you know, uh, and one of the, the, for example, one of the things that interested me in the book is that the PAX or the civil, the civil um, union agreements doesn't give, gave basically all the rights that marriage gives except um, immigration and filiation. Mm. In other words, like you didn't have any parenting rights when you don't have any parenting rights when you sign a PAX and you don't have any um, nationality rights when you sign a PAX, unlike marriage. So I think, again, the fact that these two are the excluded, um, you know, the excluded rights are interesting because you, you also see how they go hand in hand, how in some ways, uh, you know, there was a reticence to to pass gay marriage, which would give this was, you know, obviously before the law was passed, but but um, but there was a kind of worry that if we allowed, um, you know, gays to reproduce, what what would be reproduced, right? What would be and, and similar conditions, you know, similar anxieties about immigration. Again, like if we do, we give, you know, do we continue having the right of soil? Do we do we do we revoke that? So you know, right. Well, and I, you know, it's come up a number of times, and you've even talked about this as sort of one of your motivations for writing the book. These contemporary debates in France about homosexuality and adoption and the family, and you know, I found the book really illuminating in terms of understanding. You know, people would ask me in the last few years, like, what's going on if it's <laughs> over adoption? Like, with some level of shock, right? That right. something that they might associate with, I don't know, a more conservative American approach to the family or ideas about those things that was sort of surprising in, in, to some of my North American friends and colleagues. Like, why, why are the French so upset about this? Yeah. Um, and some surprising voices uh, speaking out in very strong terms about, you know, homosexual couples adopting. or um, yeah. So, you know, what can you say, Kemi, in sort of broad terms about how, how you think the book or how you see the book as making a contribution to our understanding of these contemporary debates uh, and struggles in, in, in France today? Yeah, so I think, you know, um, one of the questions that, that people were asking me when I was writing this book or when I was talking about it was, you know, well, at the end of the day, you know, these people who are opposed to adoption uh, by same-sex couples or by or just single parents, um, you know, they're using this complicated vocabulary of like con, let strauss, but at the end of the day, aren't they just homophobes or aren't they just bigots or, you know, and, and it's always this question of like, of course they are. But what's interesting, the kind of, for me, the interesting historical question is to think about, um, you know, why certain... Uh, why they would turn to a certain rhetoric in a particular time. So why certain arguments make sense in certain contexts and not in other contexts, and in, again, in particular times. So so why they were using this, the, these very complicated notions in France, and certainly, you know, and you don't see, obviously, you don't see, you know, Mitt Romney, <laughs> you know, when he's trying to... To, to you know uh, oppose DOMA, so so there's um, so 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 what makes sense in one country doesn't make sense in another country. So 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 I was trying. So I think this tells us a lot about French political culture, and and um, I think one of the things that I that it tells us about French political culture is that there's a there's a there's a big um, concern about reproduction um, and. About uh, and and so the in terms of the, the gay marriage debates, it's interesting to think about the differences and the similarities between the U.S. and France. And you know, there's there's many, and there'd be more to say about this. But but one of the things that that's interesting is that you know the American debate has focused um, mostly on the question of marriage. Um, 
you know, like the Doma, but also the, you know, the, 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 that's been the fight. And in France, uh, the real stumbling block has been affiliation or reproduction. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the idea that, 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 so, so it's interesting to think about again, the, the differences between the two countries and to, to, to think about why marriage remains such an important institution in the, in, in the U S in the way that it doesn't, it isn't in France anymore. Um, so of course there was a big push to marriage for marriage now in France for same sex marriage, but it was basically because of, uh, because marriage was the only, the only law that would allow, uh, same sex couples to adopt children together. So not, not just the single individuals, but together, mm-hmm. um, so, so yeah, so there, you know, there's, um, there's very, there's many interesting similarities and differences, but I think, I think this is a specifically French story because it didn't play out in the same way in any other country where there has been debates. You know, I think all countries have had debates about gay marriage, but, for, or, or, or reproductive technologies, but, but the way that the, that it's, that the kind of arguments that I trace in the book, I think, are, tell us a lot about French history and, and, and French culture. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I can't resist. I have to ask you about the sort of most recent scandal <laughs> about <laughs> François Hollande and, you know, the family at stake in all of that. And, you know, whether you have comments on, on that <laughs> whole craziness <laughs> with respect yeah, to some I, of the things you, you know, explore in the book. I haven't followed it as closely as I should probably, but I um, partly it's out of ennui before <laughs> For the long time. But um, but I think the, the the interesting the one interesting analysis I read, which which I've been thinking about, has been Eric Fassin's, who always writes really interesting um, pieces mm-hmm. about, about these questions about everything, but but about this question in particular. And, and his argument was that basically Hollande was shifting from the kind of uh, uh, modern kinship, you know, where he was unmarried to Ségolène Royal with four children, etc., to a kind of, and unmarried to Valérie, you know, to, to a kind of uh, m- model of, of uh, aristocracy, basically, the monarchic model where you, again, go after a younger woman. <laughs> you know? So, so that the, and so, and there was this kind of uh, idea of that that would reinstate a kind of virility, right? A kind of, of recognizable virility, like enough with modernity. Now let's get to back to to being a real man, right? <laughs> to to go back to that old trope of of um, of seducing a, a much younger woman. Um, so I don't know, you know, I don't have very much more to say about that, but I thought that was sort of interesting. And certainly, you know, I certainly think. Um, just like the DSK affair, just like, but you know, just like also the American sex scandals, that these tell us a lot again about about the importance of sexuality and uh, for thinking politics and the kind of uh, the way that sexuality really brings to light certain like uh, very important political questions. Well, and there does seem to be this sort of tolerance, and I mean, at least when viewed from the the North American perspective, I think um, the sort of tolerance in France for a kind of presidential all over the placeness in terms of family yeah. and sexuality and scandal um, that, that people have talked about for years. Well, Camille, I've taken up a lot of your time, so I'd like to ask you one final question, which is, what are you working on now? Um, so I have basically like a, a ton of projects that are ha- that have started, but but the one I have more that I've, that I've started that I'm um, that my archival research is more or less completed for that I want to start writing soon is a project on, on a movement that was that is called institutional psychotherapy, and it's basically um, a movement of critique of 
psychiatry that started after World War II. And I got interested in this because of the of the chapter on Deleuze and Guattari. Um, Guattari worked in a clinic, in a psychiatric clinic called La Borde, where they experimented with all kinds of psychiatric um, treatments. And one of the ideas was that you're not sick because of your brain, but because of the social environment that you're in. So you need to reform the social before you begin you can think about reforming you know your your unconscious and so or or, or, or treating your unconscious and so uh at laborde um and the, the this clinic of laborde uh was you know the the main person there was jean Henri, but one of the, the the theorists behind this movement was this this catalan doctor called francois tosquelles um who went to from from spain to to france during the 30s and um he's one of the people who basically brought uh, psychoanalysis to the psych- French psychiatric world. He, world. he was a, a avid reader of Lacan, very interested in the question of language and, and psychosis, and um, and he had and this and he created this hospital called Saint Alban in uh, in the Lozère, in a really remote place in France, where. Mm. Uh, where he was interested in thinking about madness and uh, and the, and the social together, and it was interesting because a lot of re- a famous and people went through that hospital. So Georges Canguilhem was there. France Fanon did his residency there, and so he used some of the techniques hmm. he learned there in Algeria. Jean Ouri and then Guattari. So and then you know surrealist um, like Tristan Zara was there for a while, and Paul Eluard. So there's a kind of uh, it's a kind of interesting microcosm to think about. Um, what I call psychic occupation and disoccupation, right? How you can disoccupy your psyche. It sounds like a fascinating project. Yeah, I hope I can get to it. But right now I've been so, I mean, before I get to that, I have to finish the one last thing, which is that I'm writing right now about the Vatican's obsession with gender. So once that is done, (laughs) which is also sort of linked to the book, but the Vatican has been really obsessed with thinking about gender and writing about gender. So, so that's, that's the, those are the kind of two main projects that I'm, that I'm working on right now. Well, I'll, I'll hopefully get a chance to talk to you about one or both of those projects if they emerge in new book form at some point in the, in, in the future. I just want to say thanks so much, Kemi, for joining me and for writing that, this fascinating book. Yeah. Thank you so much, Roxanne, for talking to me. This was great. You've been listening to New Books in French Studies. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>